0: you're listening you're listening to a university of kentucky university of kentucky college of arts and sciences podcast
1: the university of kentucky recently announced big upgrades to its supercomputing infrastructure this means more power for researchers across the campus working on some of the questions that have puzzled us the longest one such researcher is Professor Gary Furland of the Physics and Astronomy Department. Since the late 1970s, he's been using computer modeling software to carry out experiments that would otherwise be impossible. With his widely used program Cloudy and UK's high-tech supercomputing infrastructure, Furland and his students have been able to help answer some of the biggest questions facing astronomers, as well as our society.
0: I'm Gary, Gary Furland. I'm, I do observational, theoretical astrophysics. I came here to the UK in 1980, so I've been here almost a third of a century. And what I've been doing is computer simulations of things that go, out, go on out in the sky, things that go on out in the cosmos. So I
1: understand that you do a lot of the computer modeling. You have your own program that you've worked on, Cloudy, I believe. Is that yours? Yeah, so
0: in, uh, I was a postdoc at Cambridge University in the late 70s and I began working on this large computer uh, code. I was very lucky because that was just as computing was really starting to take off and computing was starting to become cheap. So the code was born, it was uh, given the name Cloudy because it, it uh, simulates what goes on inside clouds out in the inter- out, in, out in space. And so the game is, we can't do an experiment, we can't go out there, but what we can do in a computer is we can build an exact duplicate of what goes on out there and then we can predict exactly what light will be produced. And so what we can do in, in the computer is, is is set up a, a what-if. We say, Let's imagine there's a quasar with a black hole and an accretion disk and put everything, all this stuff in, in the right places and then ask ourselves what kind of light will this emit and then you can compare that in detail with what you actually see at the the telescope. And so we we can't go out there and and measure things. We, We can look at the light that we receive from it in great detail and then compare this with the computer simulations. So the code was born in 1978. Over many years I was the sole author of the code. It's come into white. There's now a group of people who are helping so it's an open source project. The code is one of the most widely used theoretical astrophysics codes there is. So there's about 200 investigations per year, we'll use, not involving us here at Kentucky, will we'll use the code somehow in, in papers. It's very, very heavily used because astronomers are in the business. Our game is to take the light and try to understand what, what it's trying to tell us. So the code is out there. It's open, it's open source. Anybody can, uh, can download it. You could, you could compile it on a Windows machine or a Mac, uh, you, can, you could, you could easily run a model in a couple of minutes on a you know, modern laptop.
1: But your background was, you came to the programming from the astrophysics side of thing and kind of fell into the computer part of it? You weren't like a programmer? Well, see, when I started,
0: though, there wasn't really, computer science wasn't really a science yet, and so everybody was self-educated. You know, we just made it up as we went along. And so, I was an astronomer, there were no computer science courses when I was an undergraduate. And uh, I mean, I was a physics major, so I took math and, and physics courses. Uh, so we were all self-educated, the computers were slow and primitive, so you could, you could learn by, by doing. And, and the thing is very different, you know, that was before terminals. And so what you would do, you'd have to go someplace, you'd go to a special room to run your program. And so it became a very social experience, so there'd be 20 people there running their program also and you would, you would work on your program a bit and submit it to the computer and stand around for 15 minutes before you got the results back with all these other people. And so it was a, a community that we, we miss this now. Nowadays, computing, you sit down with your computer screen, your keyboard, all by yourself. And don't talk to anybody all day long. At that time it was a, a, a very, very social environment. We all helped one another, so we we learned from each other.
1: How common is it to have that kind of open-source kind of program stuff going on within the kind of academic... Well,
0: if you get federal funding, so the the code has been very well funded by the National Science Foundation, by NASA, uh, by Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL, and by the Space Telescope Science Institute. And so by federal law, anything you do with federal funds is open. Everybody can, everybody has, you can't have a secret if you have a federal grant. And so any code developed with a federal grant is going to be open at some level. Now, we've very aggressively pushed making it open, make sure that it works and make sure there really are instructions. That That's less common. But astronomers are not in it for the money. So there's, there's a sense that we make the world better or we're answering a, a, a deep human question, the questions about origins, what's going on around us. And so people are motivated you know, not so much by trying to make money off the code or trying to sell something but more t- feeling that you're making the world a better place.
1: UK just announced all the kind of upgrades to their supercomputer cyber infrastructure that they have here. How do, do you take advantage of that yourself Oh we sure do.
0: They, uh, we've gone out of our way to make sure that we can use the kind of uh, computers that UK has with special properties. Uh, the, the, the machines here uh, when used as what's called a distributed cluster can basically run a thousand different simulations all at the same time and so it, it makes uh, it possible to to do what-if scenarios that wouldn't be possible otherwise. The problem we have is always you know, the, the, the answer of 42 is the answer to many different questions. It's answer to 7 plus 35 is the answer to 21 plus 21. So there's always a question. We know the answer. We know the light that came from an astronomical object. We're trying to figure out the question. So we set up a what-if scenario inside the computer and then compare that with what is going on in front of our telescopes. And so with the very, very powerful computers like they have in McVay, we can set up a thousand what-if scenarios all at one time. And then and then uh, by controlling all these, these scenarios update the what-if and, and then try to home in on what's actually happening out there. So it's a spectacular improvement in the analysis that we can do. To
1: and what, what kind of time frame does that take with this? Like if, for these like what-if scenarios are the ones that you're running? Is the, are these things that, that you plug it in and you get an answer? Or is it something that you have to wait a period of time?
0: The, for? the a typical single scenario might take uh, 10 minutes on, the, on one single processor over there. Uh, some cases it may take an hour. Uh, so they're, they're, they're you know, a fraction of a day, and, and you can do ten or a hundred in, in one day on one processor. And then having a thousand processors all helping at the same time makes it possible to, to, to really to, to try to, to learn, learn what's going on there. So what it, it increases the amount of work you can do, but then it brings much, much greater insight to try to understand what's happening.
1: Do students ever get to access this, or do they usually just get the kind of the the aftermath, like the data that you kind of? Uh,
0: well, most of it is done by students. The code uh, has been uh, developed as part of about twenty PhD theses over my time, and so the different modules inside it have been have been written by various students uh, over th- about three years of working on on the code, and so right now most of my computing is actually being done by graduate students. so they, uh, A different kind of distributed computing. <laughs> a different kind of distributed computing and uh, something they, they, it's a lot of fun and we get, we get to the results.
1: Is there anything that you haven't been able to do, you know, through limitations of technology and computing that you haven't been able to do that you kind of see are starting to become possibilities?
0: Well the big, the big questions are the dark matter and dark energy right now. And so that they're dark, they don't make any light. And so the problem for an astronomer is how do you study something that makes no light? And that, that, uh, if I could come back in 100 years, I would love to come back and find out what was the dark matter and dark energy. And I suspect that's not gonna get cracked in my lifetime. It's a very, very hard problem. It may may require new physics that we don't understand right now. In fact, that that is what people suspect.
1: Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of Physics and Astronomy for making this podcast possible.